I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the fifth chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, with that being said, I want to invite you, if you are able to, please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our great triune God, who is holy, who is awesome, who is strength, who is mighty. Dear Lord, to read your word, to contemplate your truth and your attributes, it brings into our hearts both rejoicing and trembling, dear God. Father, we are but merciful sinners. We are but dependent children upon you. We are your creatures. You are our creator, dear God. I pray that you would give us a spirit of humility, Father, I pray that you would bless your worship tonight. I pray that you would, uh, by the work of your Holy Spirit, illuminate the truth of your Scriptures, the truth of your Word. Press your Word upon the hearts of these listeners, dear God. Father, help focus the preacher. Help him understand and, and, and realize the solemnity and the great duty of the task that is before him. Fill him with your Holy Spirit that he might be pleasing in your sight. Dear Lord, we ask all these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. As previously mentioned, we are continuing our study through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we have come now to uh, verse 6 in which our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, says those uh, great and eternal words. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, as I kind of alluded to or mentioned a little bit in our last sermon, I, I truly believe, and my opinions are always subject to change, but I truly believe that this is the most important beatitude. Because I believe that it unlocks for us the rest of uh, the passage. I think that this right here is the verse that helps us understand the rest of what is going on. And, and I also believe and I hope to, by God's grace, demonstrate to you that the entirety of the gospel message is found in this verse, this one statement of Jesus, it is, it is the gospel, and it should lead us all to rejoice. 
Now, as we continue down through the progressive chain of the Beatitudes, we find that the man who had been made poor in spirit, broken over his sin, has been driven to mourning over that sin. And then we saw that that man has become meek. We define meekness as a correct understanding of oneself in relation to God. This man has saw his sin for what it is. He has wept over it, and now he's empty. He is destitute. He is bankrupt. He's drained. He's depleted, and he is completely reduced down to nothing. This man now is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. To begin our exposition, we need to define our terms. So to ask a simple, rather uh, basic question, what does Jesus mean here by righteousness? The word here, which is translated as righteousness in the Greek, is dikaiosuni. And the word essentially, at its most basic level, just means that which is good, that which is just, that which is equitable and fair, according to, and this is the important part, according to a fixed standard. You see, when you look up other places in the New Testament that this word is used, righteousness, dikai suni, is always treated as a noun or as an objective thing. Peter uses the same word in Acts chapter 10 when he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does dikaiosuni, righteousness, or who does what is right, is acceptable to him. The word, it's translated as justice in Hebrews 11. When we read the praises of the prophets who established dikaiosuni, justice or righteousness. And so my point is, you see, righteousness, it's always looked at, it's always viewed as an objective thing as something that you can look at and identify it and say that, that right there, that is righteousness. You say, Logan, why does that matter? What's, what's your point? Why is it so important? Well, because it means that whatever, whatever it is that Jesus here means by righteousness, that it's not a mere opinion, that it is not subjective. Whatever righteousness is, it is that. You see, nobody gets to redefine what righteousness is. So then you ask a question, and it's a wise question to ask. Well, how then do we define righteousness in the first place? If righteousness is, it's a noun, it's a, a fixed, concrete, objective thing, well then what what is the standard by which we understand it? You know, who gets to define what is good, what is just, what is right? Who gets to define what righteousness is? Well, I think it's a rather easy question to answer. I think it's rather plain and simple who gets to define righteousness, and that someone is God, is God. Psalm 50, verse 6 says, "...the heavens declare His righteousness." For God himself is judge. Paul, throughout the book of Romans, uh, in many places refers to 
the righteousness of God. You see, God, as the creator of all things, has not only established uh, and created material things, such as stars, rocks, trees, creatures, etc., but he has also created and established immaterial things, such as logic, love, mathematics, and even morality. He, being the creator of the universe, gets to establish and define what is and what isn't righteousness. And not only does God get to define righteousness, but he himself is described as righteousness numerous times throughout the scriptures. So then, since God has defined what righteousness is, and since he even describes himself as righteous, then righteousness, which is an established thing, it's a fixed thing, it's an objective thing, is ultimately a true reflection of the character of God, of who God is and what his will is. There is a sense in which we could say that righteousness is God. So to back up for a minute, righteousness essentially means that which is good, just, equitable, fair. And so when we are talking about the objective righteousness that Jesus here refers to, we are talking about that which is good, that which is right, that which is fair, that which is just, specifically according to God. Now you say, Logan, why spend your time talking about that? Well, this is very important to understand in the day and age in which we live. We live in what is called the postmodern age, where the idea amongst the average person is that really everybody gets to define what is and what isn't righteousness for themselves. You see, what they say is, well, what's true for you may not necessarily be what's true for me or may not necessarily be what's true for, you know, somebody else. But you see, that kind of teaching right there could not be more opposed to the reality of what the Scripture teaches. Think about that statement I just, met, I just made. What the Scripture teaches. What does, or how does, rather, the Apostle Paul define or describe the Scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.16? Brother Guy, I know you know this because you've been studying it lately. But he says that all Scripture is theanustos, that all Scripture is God-breathed. What that does automatically is it places the truth in the revelation of Scripture far above the wisdom of any man, far above the opinion of any man. You see, when we're talking about what the Scripture says, you know, I, you can read different philosophers, and you can sit there and you can say, you know, Rousseau sort of would say this, but then you got John Locke over here, and he might say this thing, and you can kind of, you know, pick and choose. Well, you know, I see what he's saying there, not maybe necessarily where he goes off on this point, yada, yada, yada. You can't do that with the Bible. You can't do that with the Bible. Why? Because the Bible does not hold itself out to be the mere wisdom of a creature. What the Bible says that the Bible is, is the breathed out word 
of the creator and sustainer of the universe. The very existence of the Bible disproves this postmodern concept of objective morality because the one who creates us and sustains us, the very minute that he writes his law down and says, thou shalt not steal, automatically says that no matter what your opinion is, no matter what you think or what someone else thinks, stealing is wrong and it is always wrong universally because the one who created you and is sustaining you has said objectively that it is wrong. So you see then, to restate my point, righteousness, it is that. It is what God defines it to be. And so you see that we as Christians, we have an ultimate objective standard for righteousness, truth, and morality because we believe in the triune God and we believe that He has revealed Himself and His will in the Holy Scriptures, which we believe are God-breathed. When we look at theft, when we look at murder, when we look at rape, and we point our finger and we say, that is wrong, that, 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 that is evil, that is unrighteous. We're not just saying so because it's our opinion or because it's how we feel. The reason I can look at a, th- a, a theft or a murder or a rape and I can say that is wrong is because I actually have a fixed standard by which to make those judgments and those assessments. And that fixed standard is, of course, God's law, His revelation, His word. Now, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what God said is good, for what God says is right, for what God says is just, for what God says is fair. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that. And so here is the amazing thing. As we have gone over each of these Beatitudes the past number of weeks, what I've always sought to maintain is that a, or that rather the proper understanding of each of these things is always in relation to God. The man who is poor in spirit, why was he poor in spirit? It's because he saw his sins and he knew that his sins were opposed to God. The man who mourned, it was because he saw the punishment that his sins deserved from God and just how wretched they were. The man who was meek, because ultimately he saw what he himself was in relation to God. And now, in his despair and in his agony and in his anguish, now he looks for a solution to his problem. And he realizes that if his problem of sin is grounded in his relationship to God, well, the solution to the problem of sin is likewise going to be found in God. And that, to me, is just sweet and and beautiful. Uh, That that God would allow to, to bring a person to a place of such 
despair and despondency and then in his mercy provide for him the solution. Why? Because he deserved it? No. But because it delighted the Lord to rescue him like we heard in the psalm that John read. You see, so many sinners, they don't even ever get to that point of brokenness, to that point of realizing and understanding their weakness. They may kick themselves for having uh, brought pain into people's lives or pain into their own lives, but that is not the same thing as truly seeing the brokenness of your sin in relation to God. And so when it does happen, it is truly a blessing, for such a thing only comes by grace. Because in essence, the man who is hungering and he's thirsting for righteousness is ultimately hungering and thirsting for God. Imagine the broken man in the situation when he finally understands the solution. You can imagine for yourself a, a miner, as in a mine worker, there's been a cave-in, there has been rocks falling around him, dread, fear, anxiety, complete darkness. The man looks at his condition and he says, I, I am done. I have nothing. I have no hope. And all of a sudden, as he's still collecting himself, he notices something. There's a little glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. Faintly, and far off in the distance. And in that moment, he has hope. He has renewal. And as he looks at that daylight, there is absolutely nothing that he desires more than to be on the other side and then to be with that daylight. You see, that is what happens to a man whom God has broken down and then shown him the solution to his problem, whom God has allowed to be at the very end of himself, poor in spirit, broken, mourning over his sin, completely meek without any regard for himself. And then God shows this man the very solution to his problem. What is that solution? It is God. When the man realizes that the same God whom he has felt guilty before, who he knows only deserves to judge him and to pour his wrath upon him due to his sin, when he understands that that very, very same God is his Savior, is his hope, is his lifeline, it's a marvelous thing indeed. Marvelous is the wrong word. Jesus says that man is blessed. Or blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now something further needs to be said about hungering and thirsting. We are not here talking about someone who has a slight affection for righteousness. We are not talking about someone who might perhaps prefer righteousness over unrighteousness given the option. No, th th this is a man who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You see, when someone is hungering for something or thirsting for something, they desire that particular thing to such a great and tremendous extent that nothing will satisfy them but that thing. A man, after working on a hot summer's day, wants few things more than something cold to drink. He is thirsting. You can find him and you can offer him all sorts of 
things, and he will want none of it in comparison to some cold water if he's truly thirsting. I remember this buddy of mine, we were uh, working on a lady's house, and, and it was a particularly warm day, and after we finished the job, the lady was uh, so thankful, thought we did such a great job, that she uh, tipped us each 20 bucks or whatever uh, before we left. And you know, we were, of course, uh, very thankful and everything for that. Well, when we sat in the truck, I said to my buddy, you know, like, I appreciate the money, I really wanted was a bottle of water. And he understood exactly what it was that I was saying. You see, normally, if you came up to me and said, Logan, I have one of two gifts for you. Which would you prefer? I have a $20 bill and a bottle of water. See, generally speaking, I don't think it's wrong for me to admit that I would take the 20 But you see, on that hot day, when the humidity's up and I'm sweating and I'm working and I'm just absolutely thirsting for a bottle of cold water, $20 seems almost irrelevant to me unless there's a store somewhere I could go buy some water. Now, we've all experienced those feelings of hunger, those feelings of thirst to a certain degree. But you see, and this is just because the Lord has been good to me and has blessed me, You see, even on the hottest, most extreme, humid day of my life, I'm just out there in the heat, working, setting trusses, pouring concrete, doing whatever it is. I've been blessed enough in my life to have never been so hungry or thirsty that I thought my life was in peril. You see, in this generation, in this culture, in this country, I, I, I don't know if most of us have really experienced truly experience the hunger and, and thirst that would immediately be brought to mind by Jesus' listeners when he speaks to them. I don't know if any of us have truly experienced the, the hunger and the thirst that, that many, 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 many people in this world experience. There have been and are still to this day millions of the people in the world who to them Uh, Hunger and thirst, it's not just an uncomfortable thing, like they get a headache or a short temper or or something like that. No, them, hunger or thirst is a death sentence. See, for us, we can have a lighthearted conversation about, you know, what we want uh, for dinner tonight or whatever, but for some people, their next meal, first of all, it's a question as to whether or not they're going to get it. Secondly, it's, a, it's like a life-and-death situation. And I think that sort of extreme idea of hunger and thirst is more closely what it is that Jesus is, is, is speaking to. Because what he means is, blessed are those who so desire and crave righteousness to the extent that their very survival depends upon it, and they want absolutely nothing more than righteousness, the way that a parched child in the desert wants nothing more than some cold, clean water. Now, honest, serious question. Did I just describe you? When I told you about a person who so desperately craves, desires, hungers, and thirsts, for righteousness, is that true of your heart? 
Is that true of your heart? Are you the blessed one that Jesus speaks of? When he speaks of a man or a woman who so greatly craves righteousness that nothing else to them matters but obtaining righteousness. The way nothing matters to a starving child saves some bread. The way nothing matters to a thirsting man in the desert saves some water. Do, do you even give a thought to such things? You say, well, I go to church, I, you know, I do this thing or I, I do that thing. It wasn't my question, was it? What I'm asking you what it is that you do on the outside. I'm asking you to look inside of your own heart and tell me what it desires. Do you hunger? Do you thirst for righteousness? Well, still yet, what does that really mean? What does that look like? We know what righteousness is. It's the objective standard of God's law, what God says is right, what God says is just, what God says is fair. We know what that is. And we know what hungering and thirsting is. We know it's a, an intense and an extreme crave and desire. So what does it look like when we put those two things together? What exactly is going on in someone's heart when they are hungering and thirsting for righteousness? I think we can identify at least three marks in the heart of a person who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They desire God. They desire the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and they desire to live holy lives. And we'll deal with all those uh, separately. So for starters, this person desires God. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 36. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Confession time. I read those words and they just knock me to pieces. I mean, look at the love that the psalmist have for God in those words. You see, the one who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness is just at this very most basic and simple level, love God and desire God and crave God. Why? Well, remember, what even is Righteousness. It's what God says is good. It's what God says is right. It's what God says is just. It is ultimately a reflection of who God is. And so the person who desires righteousness basically desires God. They want Him. They want to know Him. And you all know what the greatest commandment is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
if there is any commandment in Scripture that I break more frequently than any others, it's that one. It's that one. And yet, even though my love for God is imperfect, there is still a sense in which I do truly love Him. Why? Because He's changed my heart. What once was a heart of stone, He's reached in there, He's removed it, and He's given me a heart of flesh. Now, does that mean I'm perfect? Does that mean I never fall? Does that mean I never stumble? No, not at all. And, when, and, I, and I feel so convicted when I read the words of the psalmist in, this play, in those places. I mean, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. I mean, that is a, a standard that I, that, that I don't perfectly fulfill. And yet, if I look inside of my heart, and if you're a Christian and you look inside your heart, you will recognize that your love for the Lord is imperfect. It's not what it should be. But you see, there is still that love there. Because an unregenerate person, the, the non-believer, the one who is enslaved to their flesh, enslaved to their sin, wouldn't even cross their mind to be slightly concerned about the uh, level of love that they have for God. Not, not even a category in their thoughts. And so it's like at the same time, as these words convict me and as they convict you, it's also like they caress us and comfort us at the same time. That's, I guess, just the kind of lover that God is towards us. And it's, it's once again, what do I say? We tremble and rejoice. We tremble and we rejoice. Now the next mark that I think we can identify is the reality of a craving for the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize it's a theological uh, phrase that I need to define, but I, I, I trust you guys enough that I can teach you this and, and uh, everything like that. And so, what, do I, what am I referring to? Well, when we are talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ, what we are saying is that when a person is converted... That God counts them, God looks at them as though they had lived the perfect life of Jesus. And so God will declare them to be righteousness, and not only will he declare them to be righteous, but he will treat them as righteous. The reason that God forgives sinners of their sins is because since Jesus is the sin bearer, he took their sin upon himself and God's wrath came upon Christ on the cross, Jesus took the place of the sinner and was treated like the sinner so that way when the sinner is converted and believes in Jesus as, as their Lord and as their Savior, God will then treat the converted believer as though they had lived Jesus' perfect life. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, essentially, we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. When we have that, God looks at us and treats us as though we had never sinned. And the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they may not be able to articulate that phrase, 
but there's a genuine sense in which that is what they crave. They crave to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. They crave to have someone take their punishment for them. They crave that propitiation, that sacrifice. Here's why. What have we already talked about? We said that the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness craves God. They desire God. You know, as, as a soul pants for, uh, the soul pants for God as a deer pants for flowing streams. And so they want God. They desire Him. They want to know Him. What they realize, however, is that the only way they can ever get to God in a saving way to have a relationship with God is if God were for, to some reason, declare them to be righteous. Why? Because they're unrighteous. But that is exactly what God does for us, for all people who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All who believe in Jesus Christ, they are given the righteousness of God. And he goes on to say, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, no amount of works, no amount of good deeds you could ever do would merit you God's grace. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And, uh, and, and that's what Paul says, by the way, elsewhere is the gift of God. It's, it's nothing you do. It's nothing you earn. It's, it's all Him. Now the third mark I identify is this. The person hungering and thirsting for righteousness not only desires God and desires the imputed righteousness of Christ, they desire the sin bearer to take their place so that they can come to God, but they also desire to live holy lives. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says that when we are converted and we are saved and when the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, that He will literally change our desires. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Basically, the person in whom grace is truly working. They desire those things which pertain to godliness. Holiness for them is not some sort of fake, skin-deep, external standard that they have to meet to impress the rest of the hypocrites around them. It is the true, genuine longing and desire of their hearts. What's the new covenant promise in Jeremiah? Jeremiah 31, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is saying is that the person who is made a part of the new covenant, when they are converted, when the Spirit of God makes His abode within them, that the law of God will be written on this person's heart in such a way that it is the literal desire and craving of their heart to be obedient to that law. You could read the words of the psalmist in uh, 
Psalm 119, when he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. You know who wrote those words? It was a man who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. I'm going to ask you something again, and you better be real with me. Look into your heart and ask this question. Did those words that I just read to you from the Psalter sound like your prayer life at all? Do you pray to God that God would teach you His statutes, He would teach you His commandments, He would teach you His righteousness, that God would help you to understand His law so that way you could observe it with your whole heart? Do you delight in His commandments? Because according to Jesus, here in Matthew 5, 6, that is what a Christian is like. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So my question to you is this, do you? Do you? Do do you even care about righteousness? Is it a concern for you? Do you want righteousness? Is it your desire that God would make you righteous and conform you to the image of His Son? Well, to the person who is truly in their heart of hearts, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, there is great cause for rejoicing. We rejoice. Though we tremble, we rejoice, right? Because if that is you, now I'm not saying are you perfect. I'm not saying that are your desires perfect. I'm not saying do you, do you walk in perfect step in accordance with the law. I'm asking you this. Do you desire to know God? Do you desire that His Son would take your place in terms of His wrath? And do you desire to live obediently and to live holy life for Him? Do you desire those things? Not do you desire them perfectly, but do you desire them? If that is the case, and if I just described you, you have great cause for rejoicing. Why? Jesus says, blessed are ye. Blessed are ye. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. If righteousness is truly what you crave, God will give it to you. You see, He is that merciful. He is that loving. Jesus is the one who says, Ask and ye shall receive. And so if righteousness is what you want, God will give it to you. We read in the book of Psalms, delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. In the first place, we said that the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness in a real sense wants God. They want God. And if you hunger for God, He will satisfy that craving. You see, you will know Him. Remember again the promise in Jeremiah I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, he also goes on to say, and no longer 
shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. You see, do you realize that Christians know God? That we know Him? That we have access to Him? That when we pray to God, it's not like the vain mutterings you will hear from the natural man who is in some tough situation or something like that. And it is also not the meaningless, spiritless, shallow repetitions from someone who is praying to Mary, which is a gross sin. It's not the vain, meaningless repetitions of someone who's in some false religion or who's speaking in tongues. It's not someone who is the, you know, partaking of just the dry, rhythmic, beatings of some false faith and false ideology. When we pray as Christians, we are talking to and communicating with our Father in heaven. We are talking to someone who loves us. We go into His presence and we spend time with Him. We spend time with Him. He comforts us. He uplifts us. Why does He do those things? It's because He loves us. And how do you cultivate that relationship with God, by the way? It's by spending time with Him. Those of you, you think about your families, you think about your children or, or whoever it is, and you think, you know, uh, He's not here tonight, so I'm going to talk about Him, my father. My father and I have a great relationship. I, 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 love, I love my dad. And, but the reason why my dad and I can you know, have great times together or the reason we have this good, this close relationship is because over the past 21 years of my life, we have routinely spent time together. And you see, the more and more time that we have spent together, the greater our bond has become, you may think of, of your children or someone else you know, you see, closeness uh, in our relationships comes from just cultivating that time, cultivating that experience. Well, it's the same way with God. You know, it's like if, if we want to know God deeper, we want to know Him more fully, we've got we to cultivate that relationship to Him, with Him, rather. Spend time in His Word. Spend time in prayer. And it's like those moments over and over again will become deeper. They'll become more meaningful. Why? Because we've sought Him and found Him. Paul says that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you realize what a tremendous blessing that is? I know of a particular woman who had a very rough, a very troubled childhood. Her father was a vile man. He would get drunk, and well, when he started to get drunk, he would be all smiles, right? He'd be laughing, he'd be all happy, and everything like that. And time and time again, what dad would do is he would drink some more. And then soon the laughter would stop and the anger would arise. It would not be long until the yelling, the screaming, the swearing uh, started. He'd 
began to hit his wife, began to hit his children, and everything like that. Well, the woman I am speaking of, mercifully, by the grace of God, was converted and is now in a relationship with God. The Lord converted her, and when God saved her, He sent her His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Adoption, and she began to realize that though her earthly father was imperfect and he had failed her, that she had a father in heaven who was perfect, who was glorious. And she began to have a relationship with him. And it is that relationship with him that has gotten her to where she is this very day. And she will tell you she would never be where she is right now. She never would have made it through the many, many, many trials, many difficulties of her life were it not for her relationship with her heavenly Father. You see, that is a wonderful blessing that we have. Now, don't get me wrong, I I talked about him earlier, but I love my dad. I would not trade my dad for any dad on the earth. I don't know if anyone is running for that position, but it's it's not going to happen. I love him. He's mine. I'm keeping him. And I hope it wouldn't offend him to hear me say that, you know, the relationship in my life that I am most thankful for is not my relationship with him or any other mortal. It's with God, my heavenly Father. It's my relationship with the Lord God of Abraham. And I want everyone to know that if you truly desire to know this God of whom I speak, seek and you shall find. Those who hunger and thirst will be satisfied. And that's what did we talk about earlier with Scripture? That Scripture is not just opinions. It's not just one philosopher over here. Theonistos, God breathed. God says, you hunger and thirst for him, you shall be satisfied. And I, I give my life to that promise. Now, the other thing we observe is that when someone is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that they, in a sense, though they, they may not know the vocabulary, they are, in a sense, hungering and thirsting for the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, even if they, they've never heard that phrase before. Because what they are hungering for is to stand before God acquitted. To stand before God and have his verdict be not guilty. To stand before God redeemed. They know their sin and they know that God has no obligation to forgive them and every obligation to destroy them. And so they long to have their sins Forgiven and stand before God justified because they long to know God. They want to be with Him. And once again, I think back to that great promise in Jeremiah. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I thought the God of the Old Testament was just just this mean guy. No. You see, the God of the Old Testament is just as loving as Jesus, and Jesus is just as wrathful as he was in the Old Testament because really he's the same God. Those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be satisfied. They will receive it. God will give it to them. And in that very moment, 
they will be absolutely, totally, 100% completely justified, declared righteous. And this is why I think that verse 6 here in Matthew 5 is just one of the most amazing and beautiful statements of all time. I really think that the entire gospel itself is contained in these few words, because think about it. From whence does a hunger and thirst for righteousness come? It does not come from ourselves. It does not come from the flesh. And so where does it come from? It comes from God. It comes from His grace. So what God does, and this is how amazing He is, what God does is He gives us this desire this for righteousness. And what does He do? The desire, the hunger, the thirsting, the craving that He's given us, He then also takes it upon Himself to satisfy it. He satisfies it by sending His own Son to die on a cross as the propitiation for our sins. And then He gives us His righteousness. He gives us the righteousness of His Son. For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, that's, that's salvation right here. That's, that's the Protestant Reformation right there. That is how a person is made right before God. That is how someone gets saved. Don't entertain the impure and impious thought for a moment that it has anything to do with what you do because it has everything to do with what God does. And those to whom God gives the desire for righteousness, He satisfies it. He does not leave this job undone. There is no one who desires God who will not know Him. There is no one who desires to be saved that will not be saved. And there is no one who desires righteousness who will not receive it. For those to whom He gives the desire, He also satiates it. He will not leave a work unfinished, but He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus." That's the issue of the Protestant Reformation right here. That was what was at the heart of that great move of the Spirit of God that swept across Europe and to the rest of the world as well. It is how a man or a woman is made right with their Creator. How a man or a woman is made right with God. And the answer to that is and always has been the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you by faith, not by works, not by deeds, not by saying a prayer, not by walking an aisle, not by praying the rosary or going to confession or even getting baptized or partaking of the Lord's Supper. It is sola fide, by faith alone. And as J.C. Ryle said, there is no doctrine about which we ought to be so jealous as justification by faith without the deeds of the law. If such a thing is not precious to you, you are not a Christian. If you do not care about the fact that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, you are not saved because it is the gospel that saves. If this discussion is boring, is uninteresting to you, you would rather I would spend my time up here entertaining you, you are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And unless you repent and you come to God, unless you cry out to Him, unless you come to His Son by faith, if you don't do that, you will die in your sins. Therefore, 
Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Have faith in Him. For He is your only hope. Remove all pride. Remove all boasting. Remove all self-righteousness from yourself that you might have Christ's righteousness. Call out to Him. Cry out to Him. And if you do that, I can guarantee you this one thing, and it's on the authority of Scripture, you will be satisfied. Now, the next thing we mention is that this person who desires God, who desires the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, will also desire to live a holy life. And this desire, too, will be satisfied. This is called sanctification. Paul makes the argument in Romans chapter 6 that we who were once slaves to sin have become slaves to righteousness. And what he says is, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. What sanctification is, is it's God's gradual process of taking every single believer and progressively making them holier and holier all throughout the days of their life. There is no Christian to whom this does not apply. Because the Bible says that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Now, does that mean that believers are sinlessly perfect here in this life? Absolutely not. You already know my opinions about such things. You see, you will still struggle with the flesh. You will still fall in, in, in all sorts of things. The, the doctrine of sinless perfectionism is one I wholeheartedly reject. The Apostle Paul himself did not believe that he was sinlessly perfect, so I find it strange that many popular TV preachers would say that they have reached that point. But you see, even though Christians still battle against the flesh, there is a battle. The natural man, the unbeliever, for him it is not a battle because he does not truly know what the enemy is. They don't understand that it's their sin. See, Christians, at the end of the day, long to be free from their sin. They don't want sin. They don't want to continue in sin. They want to overcome it. That is what hungering and thirsting for righteousness is. And that is the great thing that God promises He will satisfy it. He will make you holy. Perfect in this life, perfect the side of heaven? Absolutely not. But He will sanctify you. He will make you righteous. And this should be your great desire as a Christian. Now, just like with the other blessings that we have mentioned in the Beatitudes, we realize that the ultimate fulfillment of them takes place not in this life, but in the one to come. For though we are satisfied in this life, we will be fully and totally satisfied in the next. We look at the great uh, golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8, and it, and it ends by saying, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, that is the end result for every believer. The end result to that golden chain is when they are finally glorified when they receive their resurrected bodies and dwell with God for all eternity. The believer in this state will be finally, perfectly free from and without sin, 
And that is the great longing that all Christians have. Our desire is ultimately not to be happy or to be healthy or wealthy in this life. There are a lot of happy, healthy, and wealthy people who are going to go to hell. Christians hunger and thirst for righteousness. That being said, I'll leave you with this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, The desire for righteousness, the act of hungering and thirsting for it, means ultimately the desire to be free from sin in all its forms and in its every manifestation. Let me divide that a little. It means a desire to be free from sin because sin separates us from God. Therefore, positively, it means a desire to be right with God and that, after all, is the fundamental thing. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our great, holy God, who is righteousness, who is holiness, dear Lord, help us to love you more. Help us to increase our faith. Give us your grace. Empower us with the Holy Spirit. Dear Lord, we long to know you more fully and more deeply. Dear God, give us a love for your law. Give us a love for your commandments. Give us a love for your statutes. Make your desires our desires. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.